Amen. Well, Sunday morning we began addressing uh, God's exhaustive foreknowledge and how that relates to man's volitional freedom. We established uh, that these doctrines, uh, the exhaustive foreknowledge of God as well as man's free will, both have biblical authority. And so that's as far as we got. We're going to continue uh, here tonight reading our text again from Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. <coughs> Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Then turn over to the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation 22, starting in verse 16, 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David, and the bride, and the morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Amen. Lord willing, tonight we will conclude this brief study on God's exhaustive foreknowledge and man's free will. Father, we thank you, Lord, here tonight. We come with open word. Father, we're thankful for the scriptures. You said, let the elder be apt to teach. I do pray, Lord, for the mind of Christ. I do pray, Lord, for the Holy Ghost that guides, that leads, the great teacher of thy word, Father. And Lord, that we would be settled, that we would have clear understanding of this topic according to your mind and your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin where we paused on Sunday morning, having examined the scriptures, seeing that both divine exhaustive foreknowledge and man's free will is taught in the Bible, By what means do we arrive at sound conclusions and go about explaining philosophical difficulties in our theology? So we begin tonight with a brief appeal to biblical hermeneutics. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20 read, And we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. So it stands to reason, amen, we cannot have a sure word about the meaning of scripture unless we have a sure method to interpret these words. Somebody say amen. amen. And so it is how we approach interpreting the scripture is of grave importance, as Second Timothy 2 And 15, read, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If we do not rightly divide the scriptures as God intended, then we will be ashamed, amen? And that phrase there, rightly dividing, simply means to cut 
straight, to proceed on straight paths, to hold a straight course, to handle aright or responsibly, to teach the truth directly and correctly. Amen. So hermeneutics is simply the theory and practice of interpretation. And so hermeneutics basically addresses our system or method of interpretation. doesn't matter if you've ever heard that word before, if you ever hear it again, or you know how to spell it, because I don't know how to spell it, amen? I'm probably not pronouncing it right. But all of us have a hermeneutic, amen? As we approach the scriptures, every one of us has a method of interpretation, amen? So what do we mean by that term biblical hermeneutics? Well, to exercise biblical hermeneutics then is nothing more than to approach, amen, the, the scriptures and interpreting, amen, those scriptures with Jesus as Lord and the Spirit of God as teacher. And I don't care who you are, and I don't care how smart you are, and I don't care how educated you are or uneducated you are. I don't care if you've been born again one week or a hundred years. If you approach the Bible, amen, without Jesus being Lord, or you approach the Bible without the Spirit of God as teacher, you are not going to really understand what you read, amen? So again, as I've often said, we do not judge the Word of God. The Word of God judges us, amen? It's that spirit of humility that we approach the Scriptures as ultimate authority. Now remember, as Christians, our epistemology Amen, how we come about knowing, amen, how we learn, amen, knowledge. The way that we obtain sure knowledge, certain knowledge, is limited to divine revelation. Somebody say amen. Our only objective standard for determining truth is the divine revelation of God's word. Thus, we cannot know anything for certain except we obtain that via divine revelation are the word of God. That needs to be something you're settled in. We can have lots of opinions. You don't, you don't get truth on the internet. Amen. You can have opinions. You can say, well, cocaine is more addictive than mice. I think that's stupid, but I can't read that in the Bible, and you can't read it in the Bible, so it's both of us. Just, well, by faith, we believe that. But you can't know something for sure unless it's out of the word of God. Of course, many professing Christians, if they even know what epistemology means, would openly refuse this absolute. But far more would perhaps agree intellectually, but they deny it practically in their day-to-day handling of Scripture. Moreover, as Christians, we have four primary presuppositions in regard to how we approach the Scriptures. First, the first presupposition We believe God has perfectly preserved his words for his people according to the promise that's expressed in Psalms 12, 6, and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, his silver tried in a furnace purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Amen? So remember, we approach our Bibles in the fear of the Lord. We tremble at the word of God and we come under the lordship of Christ and with the teaching of God's spirit. Thus, when we open our King James Bible, which God's spirit has led us to, we do not think human corruption, but divine preservation. That's very, very important. Amen. 
Secondly, we consider God's words to be perfect, infallible, inerrant, perfectly preserved for us. Therefore, there are no contradictions in the scriptures. There are no, it's it's an amazing thing uh, how you can sometimes talk to even seasoned believers that will pit the word of God against itself as if they're, that wrong presupposition. There is no contradiction in the scriptures. Amen. No matter what we think, no matter what it looks like, there are no, that's our presupposition. Amen. This is perfect. This is inerrant and makes perfect sense. It may not make sense to me right now, but it makes perfect sense. There's nothing wrong with that Bible. There's something wrong with me if I don't understand. Amen. Where there are presumed or alleged conflicts, we presuppose that there is an explanation, whether we know the explanation or not. We don't question the word of God. We don't seek to change what the Bible clearly communicates. There may be something, again, wrong with our understanding, but there is never, without exception, anything wrong with the Bible. As the psalmist declared in one of my favorite verses, Psalms 119 and 128, therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. And if you don't approach the scriptures that way, amen, then you're not going to hate every false way. Amen. You're not going to see things right. You're not going to have clear discernment. The third presupposition is this. We are sure that God's people without exception can discern, identify, and know the words of God. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's an absolute. Amen. You, you don't need a guru. Amen. You don't need a commentary. Can those things be, and again, a guru, you don't need a guru, and they're not helpful. But of course, you need to be taught and discipled. I'm not, that doesn't release you from being taught. As you're taught and discipled, you have to judge, amen, in every way that God is speaking to you. Amen. And so, but we, we can know the voice of God and we can be led into the truth. We can know, we as, no matter who we are, we can know the truth. Isn't that wonderful? And there's security in that, that I know the God of truth and he'll reveal himself to me. Consider for a moment when you think of the men in the Bible known, amen, for their interpretation and their prowess in interpretation. And what two men come to mind? Joseph and Daniel. And both relied solely and completely on God to obtain knowledge that was completely obscured to the, you know, the wisest men of their generation. It was Joseph who said, doth not interpretations belong to God? And that's the truth. As we approach the scriptures, God reveals himself. God interprets his own word by his spirit. The best commentary we can have is God. Amen. Finally, the last presupposition is with God's spirit and with his word provided to us, we have everything we need to arrive at sound interpretations. And so it is the full truth of God's word is obscured from sinful man because man chooses his sin rather than God's truth. That's why the Bible says that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And again, we, we discussed this not long ago. How can men can be, be culpable? That's not say, 
They could understand, but they won't understand. Because you can have your sin or you can have the truth, but you can't simultaneously have your sin and have your truth, or have truth. To get God's truth, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men prefer darkness rather than light. But when men are in sin and rebellion and their heart is not toward God and they haven't been born again, it's impossible that they understand with the natural mind. First Corinthians 2 and 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Hence, what you and I, what we know, we know by the scriptures because God has graciously promised and given his people illumination. Psalms 25 and 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him and he will show them his covenant. You know, I've always been encouraged as a believer, amen, in Jesus' words, seek and ye shall find. If there's something I don't understand, if there's something that's concerning me, if there's something that's bothering me, if there's questions that I have about the truth, I know there is a sure place that I can go. That if I will seek God, amen, then I will find out the answer. No matter how complex it may seem, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how above my intellect it may be, if I will seek God, then he will answer, amen, that question that I have. Now, he may not answer the question the way that I want him to, but he will settle my spirit, amen. Listen to me. The answer is in that Bible, friend. Uh, the answer, whatever question you have, it's in that Bible. And if you'll seek God with all your heart, then he'll answer every question that you have. Proverbs 1, 5, and 6, a wise man will hear and will increase learning. And a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. To understand a proverb and the interpretation. The words of the wise and their dark sayings. So both our epistemology and our presuppositions play an important role in how we approach biblical interpretation. If these four fundamental principles of interpretation are ignored, then our hermeneutics will be faulty. Remember, in formulating our doctrine or formulating dogma, I like that, dogma. Dogmatic. It's scriptural to be dogmatic. You're not dogmatic. You don't believe anything. But in formulating dogma, we're essentially making theological knowledge claims. Amen. We need to take heed, the Bible says, to thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now, just doctrinal knowledge alone, again, that's not salvation. You, you need more than that. But that doesn't mean that there's something negative about Bible doctrine. The Bible here says that we need to have sound doctrine. And we need to take heed to ourselves and to that doctrine and continue in the doctrine that the Spirit of God has taught us through the Word of God. Amen. So that we can be saved, delivered, and can see others saved and delivered. Therefore, what is written must always take precedent over philosophy, human reasoning, and theological conjecture. And the explicit must always trump the implicit. 
Hence, whatever theological knowledge claims that we assert, they must be consistent with divine revelation or they must be considered either erroneous or mere theological speculation. These are important dynamics to remember in arriving at sound conclusions regarding any biblical doctrine, amen, or any proposed biblical doctrine. Granted, we can attempt to explain difficulties, but the most important thing is that we stay faithful to what saith the word of God that we faithfully uphold what the scriptures reveal, even if we can't explain that or don't completely understand it. Now, God is rational, and we are made in the image of God. Therefore, it's a natural thing for us to want to understand. It's, It's normal for us to want to be able to explain. And that in and of itself, obviously, that's not wrong. In fact, you want people to have hunger. Amen. To, I want to be able to explain what I believe. I want to be able to contend for the faith and defend, amen, what I believe by the scriptures. Amen. But it, you know, it crosses a line when we, you know, demand explanation or we demand understanding as conditions for faith. In other words, I can't believe this until I understand it. I can't believe this unless I can explain it or someone can explain it to me. Amen. That is and can be sinful. It's basically calling God a liar. Amen. Because really the first thing you have to do is the will of God. And and that's another, you know, basic principle in coming to understanding is, as Jesus said, you do the will of God, you'll know the doctrine. Amen. A good understanding he gives to those who what? Obey his commandments. In Hebrews, it says, through faith, we understand. Through faith. So God has called us to believe, just as it were, throws the Bible down, believe it. It's my word. And he does that because it's reasonable to do so. That's why the the old test, you know, that I think Brother Greer was the first one we heard that from, where he said, you believe in, you know, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 2, and everybody starts looking in the Bible what it says. Why do you have to look at it? Amen. You should immediately just say, of course, I believe it. I'll have to read it first. That's judging. See, this is where people would say, I don't judge the Bible. That's an example of someone judging the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to judge them. So God is rational. We're made in his image. Amen. We want to explain. We want to understand. Amen. So we have to recognize that we'll never escape the necessity of walking by faith. Again, there's nothing wrong with questions, but my experience, there are three different and distinct lines of questioning. First, there are those who question because they are sincerely, spiritually hungry. That's good. That's a positive. Secondly, there are those who question because they wrestle with doubt and unbelief. That's a negative. Finally, there are those who question in an attempt, and many times this is unconscious, to accuse and to attack and cloak their own sin. They're driven, amen? And I've seen all three classes of that type of questioning right here in this little church. You can satisfy the questions of the spiritual hunger, but the questions of the doubters and the accusers are a bottomless pit. Amen. They just, you cannot 
And he just answered question after question, hypothetical after hypothetical. What about this? Just wrestling with one or the other. It's usually rebellion or it's unbelief. You see, listen to me there. It has to come a point in your life where you just simply say, that Bible is my ultimate authority. And I believe that this is the ship that I'm sailing on. And if this ship sinks, that I'm sinking all the way to the bottom with it. If this is a lie, I'm going to believe it until I'm dead. I will not be moved from the word of God. That's a posture of your heart. It's a choice of your will to believe. And once you do that, you know what happens? You really don't care. I can remember, you know, when I was a young believer, and I've told this story before, but you know, back uh, in the early days of Free Speech Alley, and go out there, there'd be three, 300, 400 people. And uh, that, that was when they had, you know, the event. We preached out there before and after, but during the event, there would be 300, you know, people out there. And uh, they were waiting for us to preach. And I can remember the Muslims met me out there one day, and they had a book with all these, uh, you know, seeming contradictions from the Bible. And most of them were, you know, things that just carnality, things that just, you know, one account in the Gospel of Luke and another account, which was a little bit fuller, in uh, the Gospel of John. But they brought up that, um, you know, discretion or whatever you see uh, in Kings and Chronicles. And, you know, those two books, they have exact same wording, same chapters. I mean, all the way through every chapter, just almost every chapter is verbatim. One chapter had, you know, I can't remember exactly, 700 chariots and 200 horses. And, and then you went over in Kings and it said 200 horses and 700 chariots. I'd never seen that before. And they brought it up in front of, you know, 300 people. And, uh, you know, I, was, I didn't know what to say. But I didn't say it was an error. I just didn't know how to answer it. Oh, they mocked and just 300 people were screaming. And so I went home that night. And, uh, of course, back then uh, you didn't have internet. And I didn't know anybody that knew the answer. I just had to seek God. So I sought God, and the first, you know, I, I, I prayed through. Well, how did I pray through? Well, God told me there's no contradictions in the Bible. It's basically what, you know, the Holy Ghost told me. And so then I was waiting for him to tell me how that was in there. But he didn't tell me. He just told me. <laughs> he just told me, you go out there tomorrow, and you stand on that bench, and you tell them there's not a mistake in my life. And I did. But, you know, Inwardly, it bothered me, but I denied or rejected or resisted that temptation to doubt. But it did, there was a churning. There was an unsettledness. But, you know, as you move forward and you move into real faith, I don't care what they show me out of the Bible. I don't care if aliens come down and land right here, amen, and zap this building it come back. Hey, Ben, say the Bible's a lie. I'm not believing it, and it isn't going to even bother me. You have to be committed to the word. And you can be in that. And you better be in that place. Because if you're not, when they put that double barrel shotgun in your mouth, amen, and they cock those barrels, amen, with that buckshot, the first thing's going to end your mind is if any unbelief or doubt, maybe there was a mistake in there about denying Jesus. Maybe I can get away with it. Better have it settled in your spirit because it's going to be tested sooner or later. But you can't satisfy all the questions. 
And no one has all the answers except for God. And we have to live by faith. God has asked us to believe because it is reasonable to do so. We can trust him because we know him. Who else can we more trust than him? If you know him, you know he is absolutely trustworthy. So seeing that both God's exhaustive foreknowledge and man's free will are scriptural, how might we explain them being compatible? Amen. Well, we assert that God's exhaustive foreknowledge does not violate man's volitional freedom. Amen. As the Bible said, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. So though we have something that we believe is firmly scriptural. So first of all, we begin by allowing the Bible to speak and not altering what it reveals to accommodate our finite reasoning. Remember, as we pointed out on Sunday, the apparent philosophical conflict of exhaustive foreknowledge and free will has pressured both the Calvinist camp and the open theist camp to alter what the Bible says rather than to deny their finite reasoning. And so that right there, those two groups of people, I can say with absolute certainty, it exposes a false epistemology and a faulty hermeneutic. Amen, because they're unwilling to allow the Bible to trump whatever difficulties they see philosophically. And in doing so, they are biblically blinded or insulated from a sound understanding. You see, if that's as far as you need to go, the devil's going to have you every time. Because he's just going to put you in the camp where you say, well, that can't be, that can't be right. This can't be true. The Bible, what the Bible says, we have to change that you're never going to arrive at a sound understanding. So our hermeneutic has led us to establish two biblical absolutes, namely God's exhaustive foreknowledge, but also man's free will. The Bible teaches these two things, but admittedly they seem, quote unquote, amen, somewhat philosophically at odds. Yet we must not question the scriptures. There are no contradictions in the word of God. So they must be able to be reconciled. There has to be a way to explain this, amen, or perhaps there is a better way to explain it. There are some things that we probably will never be able to explain, and it's still scriptural and true. We have two options. In an appeal to human reasoning and philosophy, we can change what the Bible says. Or an appeal to human reasoning and philosophy, We can attempt to explain, but yet remain faithful to the scriptures. So this whole, you know, conflict philosophically is raged for many centuries, even outside of Christian theology, among worldly philosophers, and uh, really there's just two basic camps, and there's not a whole lot of resolution. Clearly, two camps, one believes exhaustive foreknowledge is irrefutably inconsistent with libertine free will, and the other assert that they are compatible. So as you know, we here at CFF, we make a distinction between certainty and necessity. This enables us to affirm both exhaustive foreknowledge and libertine free will. The fact that something is foreknown by God makes it certain, but it does not make it necessary. Amen? So, in other words, we must not confuse 
foreknowledge with divine causation. So, you know, right here in the beginning, I want to go back to a very, very key passage in the Bible that we touched on just briefly on Sunday. That's 1 Samuel 23, 9 through 13. And this, this passage here basically affirms everything we believe about this topic. It's right here, just laid out. Let's go back and read it again. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, bring hither the ephod. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant has certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah. Now this is where David was finding refuge. Amen. Saul is pursuing him. We, we know the story, the conflict between uh, King Saul and David. And so David is basically praying to the father. He's hiding, if you will, in this city. And he's, you know, he knows that Saul is seeking him and heard that he was going to come and to destroy the city for my sake. In other words, besiege the city, tell the elders of the city, you either give David to us or we're going to start slaughtering the whole town. That's basically what he's saying. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then said David, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver thee up. Then David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah and he forbear to go forth. In other words, he didn't go there. So this Old Testament story perfectly demonstrates what we believe. God not only knows everything, or he knows everything, and that includes every future choice of every single soul, but he also knows all the contingencies or the possible choices, amen? So David praying here to God, he's not praying, obviously, with the idea that he has no choice. Oh, God, tell me what my fate is. What's going to happen to me? And there's nothing I can do because if you foreknow it, then, you know, there's no way that I can escape it. Why would he even pray such a prayer? He prayed because he was seeking to avoid King Saul. So God's exhaustive foreknowledge includes all. But only outcomes are fixed certainties. We're going to talk about that in a minute here. So God answered David's prayer as it was framed as a contingency or future possibility. Now, the word if is not in here, but basically that's what David is praying. Amen. You know I'm here. I hear Saul is seeking, amen, to come here. Amen. I'm not sure. That's why I'm praying to you. But if he comes up here, amen, will or will he come up here? Yes. If I stay here, if I stay here, is he going to come here? Yes. And if he comes here, will these men, if I stay here and he comes here, will these men turn me over to them? Amen. And God said, yes. You see, it was conditional. It was a contingency. Amen. If he had just said, what's going to happen? God would have said, you're going to talk to me. I'm going to tell you this. And you're going to leave because you're going to avoid Saul. And he ain't coming up here. Amen. 
what God would have known in his foreknowledge would have certainly come to pass. So the right understanding is not, you know, what God did foreknow, amen, did not come to pass. No, God also knew that Saul wouldn't really come up. That, that certainty is an outcome, amen, and that certainty, uh, you know, did not happen. So again, what God foreknows is certain but not necessary. This irrefutably proves that God's foreknowledge was based on David and Saul's choices, not vice versa. Do you see that? I can't see y'all too good. Somebody say amen if you can understand. Amen. In the Calvinistic world of hard determination, there are no contingencies. Only God's decree with a fixed destiny and faith. Why would God answer David this way if there was no other outcome? Amen. The outcome that he predetermined. Why would God answer that way? Amen. If true, that makes no sense. And really it makes God a liar or dishonest. Moreover, the scriptures like the following prove God's foreknowledge never negates human free will. We have Abraham in Genesis chapter 19, and God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham is interceding, asking if there's 50 righteous. You know the story. On down to 10, will you destroy the city? Amen, or will you spare it? And God said, I'll spare it if you can find this number of righteous people. In Luke 10 and 13, Jesus said, woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethesda, for if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sodom, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. How can that be? If men can only do what God has decreed, and the foreknowledge of God, which would be they didn't repent, and they were judged, that there is no option to that, it's impossible that they could have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Luke 13 and 34, Jesus uh, and passing Jerusalem and grieved, amen, with the judgment that had come upon the Jews, amen. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not, amen. What happened to them was linked to their free choice. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8. And I could cite many passages here. Just for time's sake, I'm sticking to these four. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 8. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. How could that be? If God's foreknowledge, amen, absent without the possibility of choice, just ruled out choice because the foreknowledge of God was that the princes of this world certainly crucified the Lord of glory, amen. How could there be the possibility? It is contingent upon their choices, amen. Granted, God could cause events and move men to accomplish his providential plan. And that's another issue here. I mean, throughout the Bible, God has revealed himself as a God highly involved and engaged in the affairs of men. 
So we, we're not saying that God never causes anything. God certainly causes things. We're not saying that God doesn't, doesn't predestine things. The Bible teaches he certainly predestines things. Amen. His providential plan is going to come to pass. And so he will plant and pluck up entire nations. He can uh, place men in positions of authority. He can uh, judge wickedness and uh, eliminate people, etc., and so forth, and in a lot of different situations. But in regards to individual salvation are matters of morality. He's not forcing, he's not tempting anybody. He's not forcing anyone to make moral choices and he's not forcing or coercing anyone to individual salvation. And those matters, God jealously honors volitional, volitional freedom. He will not force such choices. And so he's involved in men's life and not just from aloof or from a distance. He is many times in the Bible time and time again, intervene to influence, even to change outcomes, not individual salvation, but influencing men to accomplish his providence, amen? So if exhaustive foreknowledge is causation, this would not be necessary. Just because God knows it is dumb. He could just sit back on his throne and not do anything at all. See, if God knows, it's got to happen. Now, we agree that his foreknowledge is certain, but because we're all also saying there is, doesn't violate, amen, the freedom of choice. And so God does move and operate in time. Some may respond with yes, but God would know of his own interventions, amen? But my reply is this, a mere show would be contrary to God's very nature. God is perfectly efficient. God is always purposeful, and he does nothing without reason. Ecclesiastes 3 and 17, for there is a time, for there is a time there for every purpose, for every work. Amen. T. Austin Sparks said, God is a God of purpose and not passive, not inactive. He is a God actuated by positive purpose. God is not an inactive God, a standoff God or just a spectator somewhere amidst the shadows. He is right on the scene. He is right in things. He cannot endure a state of things that has no purpose. You see, it would be against God's revelation of himself to simply be play-acting. Amen, this is all just, you know, we're actors in a play going after a script. And finally, bear with me as I read from my article on this subject. Uh, to offer an explanation of how exhaustive foreknowledge and free will work together. And this is, this is not the whole article. It's just an excerpt, but uh, it is a bit lengthy, but I think it's the best way for me to uh, communicate is just to read it. For the sake of discussion, let's refer to an event in which a particular possibility is actualized as an outcome. An outcome, once it occurs, becomes a fixed event. In other words, a past event which cannot be undone. Outcomes are fixed, irreversible, and immutable events. And that once they occur, they cannot be changed and remain whatever they are. An outcome occurs at the transition time period when the immediate present becomes the immediate 
past. Free will in the libertine sense is a phenomenon which exists before an outcome occurs. The process of considering various alternative possibilities and then arriving at a choice of one alternative exists only in the immediate present. An outcome is when we actualize a possibility while excluding others. The time period in which we have a choice between different possibilities up until a choice is made, actualizing one possibility and excluding others is in the right now. For example, will I go to Baton Rouge today or will I not go to Baton Rouge today? Well, if I drive to Baton Rouge today, you begin to weigh this on it. Well, if I don't drive to Baton Rouge, then I'm going to have to go the next day. All of that, amen, possibilities, amen. We are reasoning back and forth, weighing out these possibilities, but there comes a point where we make a choice. That choice is an outcome, and it is fixed and immutable, amen. So put simply, outcomes involving human volition are a result of the process of making a choice. And the realm in which this process takes place is in the time before the outcome. Thus, free will exists in the time frame preceding the outcome of making a choice. With respect to a particular action, once the agent performs that action, it becomes an outcome. The time frame in which the agent is considering alternative possibilities before him Deciding which possibility to actualize is the immediate present, or that is the realm of choice making. And this realm of choices exists in the time frame before an outcome occurs. Skeptics of free will often write things such as, if John is going to perform the action of mowing his lawn next Saturday, and if God knew via foreknowledge that John would perform that action Next Saturday, then John did not have free will with regard to mowing or not mowing his lawn next Saturday. He could not have done otherwise than to mow the lawn next Saturday. It should be carefully noted that whenever the skeptic of free will makes this point, their every reference is to some future event such as John performing X or refraining from performing X and each and every case. Amen. It's reference to an actual outcome. In other words, they're talking about outcomes, not that which precedes outcomes, which is the decision-making process. I see smoke coming out of some of your ears. Amen. <laughs> and you know, me reading it to you, probably not, hopefully it is understandable, but uh, you can go to the website and it's on there. But nevertheless... Take John mowing the lawn, for example. If John mows the lawn, his mowing the lawn, or refraining from mowing the lawn, if it is an intentional and voluntary action, is an outcome. John will be deliberating between alternate possibilities open to him preceding the outcome of choosing to mow the lawn or the outcome of choosing not to mow the lawn. But free will, if it ever existed in regards to his mowing the lawn or not mowing the lawn, had to exist prior to the outcome, which was him actually mowing the lawn. So it's inaccurate and false to say that if God foreknew a particular outcome, say John mowing the lawn next Saturday, 
then John's free will is eliminated and he did not act freely. If God foreknows all future outcomes, including choices, and does not tamper with the deliberate process which results in a particular outcome, then how does his foreknowledge eliminate free will? It doesn't. And if God interferes in this area in such a way as to directly control the mind of the person so that they no longer have a choice before the process of choice choice making culminates in the actual choice made, then the person is not acting freely in the libertine sense. And it must be kept in mind that the argument of the skeptic is that if God simply knows what the person will do, knows what outcome will obtain, will obtain and God has, what outcome will be obtained and God has simple foreknowledge of a future event that this alone eliminates libertine free will. The truth is the prediction depends on the foreknowledge and the foreknowledge on the event itself. The error of the necessarians on the subject is they put the effect for the cause and the cause for the effect. They make the foreknowledge the cause of the event, whereas the event is the cause of the foreknowledge. No event ever took place merely because God knew it or foreknew it. On the contrary, the taking place of the event is the cause of his having foreknown it. Let this distinction be kept in mind that in the order of nature, the event does not depend on the knowledge of it, but the knowledge on the event. And we may readily see a distinction between certainty and necessity. It is certain with God who will be saved and who will not. Yet it is also certain that salvation is made possible to all. And likewise, many who of their own free choice never will embrace it. Indeed, God knows who will, under the influence of gospel preaching and Holy Ghost conviction, choose salvation, those who will reject it. However, though God foreknows, he does not cause these outcomes. God has made some things necessary and some things contingent. Necessary events, he foreknew is necessary. That is, he foreknew that they could not possibly take place otherwise. Contingent events, he foreknew as contingent. That is, he foreknew that they might take place otherwise. And thus, we think foreknowledge and free agency may be harmonized, human responsibility maintained, and the divine government of God successfully vindicated. Amen. I hope that helps you understand. Would you stand here tonight? Praise God. Amen. God's exhaustive foreknowledge and free will. They are compatible. Amen. Foreknowledge is not predestination, no matter what someone may say. Praise the Lord. We're going to be dismissed here tonight. I trust this has helped you. Amen. Sunday morning, I encourage all of those that will be speaking. Uh, to truly be filled with the Holy Ghost and have something. Even if it's a testimony, trusting that God is going to direct you. Amen. It's going to be edifying. And the Spirit of God will have his way amongst us. Amen. Praise God. Brother Jeremy, would you dismiss us?